Okay, if you would take your Bible this morning and turn to Psalm 138. Psalm 138, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. The title of the message this morning is Magnified Above His Name. You know, we sang a song, first song this morning, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. Isaiah 9, 6 says, His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's quite a name. But this passage of Scripture says that I've magnified my word above my name. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to look at this this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity that we have to open your precious word. Father, I pray as we look into the word of God today, that we allow the Spirit of God, who is the author of this blessed book, to teach us, instruct us from your written word. The truth, thy truth, what you have said about your word, and how we are to give heed to observe it. So, Lord, have your will and way. May you be glorified. Give us understanding in these things. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our Constitution and bylaws, which seems like I believe every church has, there's only one church I've ever been to that didn't have a Constitution. I thought that was kind of odd. But anyway, uh, in our Constitution and bylaws, there's a section called the Declaration of Faith, which is really a summary of what we say we believe. And under that section, um, and it's it, the first statement is about the Holy Scriptures, and, and it reads like this. We believe in the verbal, every word, plenary, complete inspiration of the Old and New Testaments, that the Old and New Testaments are comprised of the 66 books, are equally inspired and without error or contradiction. They are the final authority for faith and life, inerrant, infallible, and God-breathed, perfectly recorded by holy men of God, that they are the supreme standard by which all human conduct, conduct, creeds, and opinions shall be tried, that anyone who adds or takes away from this complete revelation is cursed by God. We believe that God has providentially and verbally preserved his words from the original autographs, in the Masoretic texts of the Old Testament and received texts of the New Testaments, which are the texts used by the King James Version, and that only accurate translations from these texts are to be used at Lighthouse Baptist Church. And then it gives a list of scriptures supporting that statement. So as we think about that this morning, uh, I want to I speak about that, those statements and what the Bible says about the Bible itself. And, and hopefully it will encourage us, give us some understanding of why, why do we hold to the King James Bible in English? Uh, it, by the way, this isn't a new, new thing. You know, some would say this is, a, this is kind of a new thing if it was in, uh, a teaching or a belief started by Peter Ruckman. Well, that's a lie, which is a lot of lies purported, put out about the King James position, which we hold. Bobby Mitchell sent me this a couple years ago, and this is a quotation uh, from a family Bible that was originally owned by James Garrison, which was his great-great-great-great-grandfather. It was published between, uh, printed sometime between 1873 and 1877. Anyway, there's a quotation in, in pages 10 and 11 of that Bible. It says this, We are very sure that the results of all such investigations will be to heighten confidence in the present version. 
fill the heart with unfeigned gratitude to God for that blessed book which we now enjoy and which, for nearly two centuries and a half, has been pouring its light and consolation wherever the English tongue is spoken. Let science toil and diligence labor. Let literature hold up her torch and cast all possible light upon the sacred text. But we must and ever shall deprecate from any wanton attacks upon our received version. Any gratuitous attempts to supersede it by a new and different translation. It is the Bible which our, which our godly fathers have read and over which they have wept and prayed. It is the good old English Bible with which are associated all our earliest recollections of religion. And as such, let it go down unchanged to the latest posterity. Let us give it in charge to coming generations and bid them welcome to all the blessings that has been paid to us. Let it be our fervent prayer that the light of the resurrection morning may shine on the very book which we now read, that we may then behold again the familiar face of our own Bible, the very same which we read in our childhood. There is no book, says the illustrious Selden, so translated as the Bible for the purpose, for pure pose. If I translate a French book into English, I turn it into English phrase, not French English. But the Bible is rather translated into English words than to English phrase. Hebraisms are kept, and the phrase of the language is kept. The style of our present version, says Bishop Middleton, is incomparably superior to anything which might be expected from the finical and perverted tastes of our age. Of course, this was written over a hundred and about 150 years ago. So this is not a new thing. Uh, but as we look at the scriptures itself, what does the Bible say about this? I want to notice, first of all, the inspiration of scriptures. And when we talk about the inspiration of scriptures, if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Uh, the word inspiration, or is, is uh, inspired, means God breathed. God breathed. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So, when we talk about inspiration, he's talking about something that is, the word means God breathed. And in our statement that we have in our Constitution, <coughs> excuse me, it says we believe in verbal and plenary. The word verbal means every word of Scripture is inspired. Every word. Not just the word. No, every word. We're talking about words on a page. Words on a page. Uh, plenary means complete or all parts alike. Those genealogies are just as inspired as John 3.16. The Old Testament is just as inspired as the New. There are some that are not as applicable to us as others. But it's all equally inspired of God. It's all equally inspired. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield on them that put their trust in Him. It is, you see, inspiration doesn't refer to thoughts or concepts, but words. Words on a page. We're not talking about thoughts. We're talking about words on a page. And see, this is a big difference between the, the King James Version in English and all the other English translations. And, and the translators of those versions, other versions, admit this. Um, in the preface of this, the NIV Bible, which I have here this morning, which I keep just for this purpose, in the preface it says this, quote, All this involved many thousands of hours of research and discussion regarding the meaning of the text and the precise way of putting them into English. In the next page, it says this. The first concern of the translators has been the accuracy of the translation its fidelity to the thought of the biblical writers. Now, when I go to the Bible and I read a, a text, what I'm trying to do was preparing for messages, 
I'm trying to convey to you what God means when he says, right? The in, that's interpretation. I'm interpreting the text. When they say that the because first concern of translators has been the accuracy of the translation and its fidelity to the thought of biblical writers, they're translating thoughts, not words. Not words. It goes on, quote, They have weighed the significance of the lexical and grammatical details of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. At the same time, they have striven for a more word-for-word translation because thought patterns and syntax, that means sentence structure, different from language to language, faith communication of the meaning of the writers of the Bible demands frequent modification in sentence structure and constant regard for the contextual meanings of words, unquote. Now, if you were a sodomite and you started translating Genesis chapter 19, how would you tend to interpret that? By the way, there was a sodomite involved in the translation of the New International Version. Her name was Virginia Mollicott. There was also one involved in the New King James Version. And in that version, they translate sodomite to shrine prostitute. There's a difference. You know, shrine prostitute may be a sodomite, or he may not be. There's a difference. You know, when the Bible talks about verbal pre-estimation, we're not talking about thoughts or concepts. We're talking about words. And, and see, this is one of the major problems when you, when, you, when you get into the translation work. You know, to translate means you change or you move it from one place to another. You move the same thing from one place to another. When the King James translators, you know, in, in all the Bibles, you know, our, our Bible is a translation of the Hebrew and Greek, which, which was originally what God gave his word in. So, so it's a translation but those King James translators used what they called formal equivalency. In other words, they translated word for word. And they even to the point where if it was a verb in Greek, they tried to keep it a verb in English. If it was a noun in Greek, they tried to keep it a noun in English. It was a word for word translation. As much as possible. Now, it's not always per- possible to have a word for word. That's why you have in your... King James Bible, some words in italics. These words the translators added to make complete sentences or to make sense in English because you didn't have those words. You know, they, they had, they had uh, uh, you know, pre- prefixes and suffixes in, in Greek that, and, and there was inflections that, were, that we don't understand in English that they understood in Greek. And so to make it sense in English, they would add a few words, but didn't change the meaning. But see, these other translations over here, they use what they call dynamic equivalency, not formal, where they, that gives them room to move and to change things. They weren't concerned with the word for word. What they did was, we want to know what the thoughts are. That's not translation, that's interpretation. And so if you come to to the Bible with a bias against scriptural baptism, for example, just change it. Maybe that's why Acts chapter 8 and verse 37 is not in the New International Version. And that verse has to do with whether whether Philip could baptize the eunuch. We'll see a little later on. But no, God's, see, God gave his words. In John 17, 8, Jesus was speaking to his disciples just before he was crucified. And he said this to them, you know, and that was the first church. I have given unto them the words, again, words, which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. 
You know, over and over we see this in the Bible. Numbers 24, 16. He has said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High. Uh, Psalm 107, verse 11. Because they rebelled against the words of God. John 3, 34. Who, whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. In Mark 13, 31, the Bible says this. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And the Lord was so emphatic about this idea that his words, I'm talking about words on a page, would not pass away. You remember in Matthew 5, 17, 18, he said, not even a jot or tittle. No wise shall pass till all be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle is like crossing the T and dotting your I in English. Words are important because words have meaning. And when you start moving words around and changing words, you change meanings. And see, the men who translated the King James Version of the Bible believed God's words to be God's words. And they didn't believe they had the right to interpret it and say, it's his words. Inspiration. God breathed. We have all of God's words. All of it is inspired. Second thing I wanted to notice here, the method, not only the Bible claims inspiration, but the method of, of inspiration. If you look in Second Peter chapter 1, <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 1, and verses 19 through 21, 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says, the Bible says this, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, and no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, the context of this passage here is Peter is referring, if you read the, the, the verses prior, Peter is referring to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, that was a, that was a grand and glorious experience. You know that Peter, James, and John, Jesus took them up in the mountain. He was transfigured before them. He became like appearance like white as snow. And, and Moses and Elijah appeared to and, and talked with him about his decease. And, you know, and, 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 and Peter said, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tents, one for thee, one. And then this voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And then it was, they were back to normal. I mean... What an experience. Not one you would soon forget. But Peter says, Oh, that was a grand and glorious experience, but I'm going to tell you something. We have something more sure, more certain, and more important than that. More reliable, and that is, we have an inspired book, the Bible. And we see here in this passage the method or the, the two aspects of inspiration. You know, we believe the Bible was, 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 was inspired. It's God-breathed. But, but here's the method or the aspects of inspiration. Number one, we have human penmanship. If you again, notice in the end of verse 21 it says, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That word moved means they were born along. The writers were consciously, willingly carried along, if you will, as God gave the words, they wrote them. God gave the words. If you notice it says it was not by the will of man, but as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know, this, this word moved is also used in Acts chapter 27 and verse 17 where Paul was on, on a ship sailing for Rome. And it says, And when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall in the quick trans, strake sail, and so were driven. In other words, the wind drove them along. And that's the idea. They were, they were carried along by God, and God directed them what to write, and they wrote. So you have this human penmanship. Yes, God used men to give us his word. 
but it's also of divine authorship. So we have human penmanship, but divine authorship. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. You know, it didn't come. Again, it didn't come by the will of man. The Holy Ghost was the active source of the Scriptures. Uh, And we see this, Jesus even spoke of this while he was on earth during his earthly ministry. In John 14 and verse 26, he said to his disciples, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So he's going to bring everything to your remembrance, what you want to write down, and he's going to teach you other things. You know, the, the, these disciples, some of them that God used to pen Scripture, recorded what they had already seen and the Spirit of God brought to their remembrance, and then they added to that other things that the Spirit of God told them to write. See, the, the Holy Spirit told them what to write. In Acts, or John 16, verse 13 14, again, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. So, you know, God directed them as to what to write. Uh, and again, we see this as spoken of in other places. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, quoting from the Psalms, uh, I think it was Peter said, Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Or Isaiah one twenty. But if you refuse to rebel, ye should be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. But it was Isaiah that wrote that. It was Isaiah that said it and wrote it down. But he said, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I got it from God. He directed me to write it. And Exodus 4.28 says, And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him, and all the signs which he had commanded him. Joshua chapter 3, verse 9, Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. But it was Joshua's mouth that was speaking them. And it was his hand that wrote it. You see. And again, in 1 Samuel 8, 10, Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that ask of him a king. And of course, we see this in the New Testament also. When Paul was at Thessalonica, he said, You receive the word, not as if it was the words of men, but as it is in truth, the words of God. And so, we have human penmanship, but we have divine authorship. God used holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So that's inspiration of scriptures. And, and then notice the second thing, if we consider our, our statement, talks about the preservation of scriptures. The preservation of scripture. And, and of course, that statement reads as this. We believe that God has providentially and verbally preserved his words from the original autographs in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament and received text of the New Testament, which are the texts used by the King James Version. And, of course, there are other uh, versions, there are other uh, translations in other languages that have been translated from the Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus as well. So, but anyway, but here we're talking about the preservation of Scripture. You know, what this means is we believe God has preserved his words. Not word, but his words. In extant and existing manuscripts and translations of those manuscripts, we have, by the way, there are no originals. There are no originals. There's no original Old Testament Hebrew. There are no original Greek New Testaments. All we have are copies. Copies. And, you see, this is where the many people depart from us. Because really, in reality, they don't believe that God can use men to keep his words. 
And this is what you often will read in doctrinal statements of churches. This is a, this is a church, big church in Raleigh, calls itself Fundamental Independent Baptist. This is what it says about the Bible. Inspired, inerrant, authoritative. God breathed out the very words of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments so that in the original writings they are inerrant and of supreme and final authority. Now what's the problem with that statement? There are no original writings. So then that raises the question is can I really say that I have the words of God? I can't. If I'm going to be honest, I don't know. I can't really know. And these guys believe they're scribe wares. There's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of stuff written about this. If you, if you, if you want, you know, there's, there's a stack of books like this back in the library. If you want to read more about it. But anyway, you know, uh, so we have a problem here. We have a problem. There are no original writings in existence. So can we know then that we have the inspired words of God still? Again, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does God say about this? Not what does man say about it, but what does God say if it is his word? What does God say about his word? Well, go to Psalms chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. Psalm 12, 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words. I want you to think about that statement. Pure words. And again, the word, word is, the words is plural. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now notice this statement. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Just an aside note here. I never knew this till some years ago. A guy pointed this out to me that the King James Version is the seventh English translation. I don't know if there's any significance there, but but it says purified seven times in the furnace of earth. But King James is the seventh English translation. But God says about his words, words again, that he would preserve them from this generation forever. And he would say, notice it says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them. So who is the preserving agent? Is it man or is it God? Who was the inspiring agent? Was it man or was it God? It was God. Look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Verse 8. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Now in the Bible, it seems to indicate that 40 years is a generation. So if he's preserving his word or keeping his commandments for a thousand generations, that's 40,000 years. Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Verse uh, 151. Thou art near, O Lord, and thy commandments are truth. And then again, verse 160, Thy word is true from beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. And again, Mark 13, 31 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You know, the words of the Lord are the basis for our salvation and will be the basis for our judgment to come. And if you go to 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 23 to 25. 1 Peter 1, verse 23 to 25. It says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, 
by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So we are born again, the Bible says, not by incorruptible seed, or by corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now the word incorruptible means it is not liable to corruption or decay. It's imperishable. You know, the Bible only speaks of several things that are incorruptible. In this chapter earlier, Peter talked about the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. In verse 18, he says, we're not redeemed with corruptible things. And so he's referring to the blood as incorruptible again. And then he says the word of God is also incorruptible. It can't be, it can't be defiled. It will not change. You know, Psalm 12, 6 and 7 says they are pure words. Uh, Proverbs 30, Solomon, under inspiration, said every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. So what we're seeing here is a promise of continued purity, of continued life. You know, the word of God is quick. It's living. It's a living book. It's a, it, those are living words. They're not just words that somebody wrote down like somebody's novel or something. You know, those are dead words. No, these are living words. So there's, there's continued purity. There's continued life. It abides. It endures forever. You know, this is preservation. Really, if you believe in inspiration, preservation is a logical doctrine. If it was God that inspired it and used men to write it, what's so difficult about him preserving it? And using men to do it. Robert Sargent, in his book on Bible doctrine, said this, quote, The doctrine of inspiration teaches us that God was concerned with words. The Bible teaches verbal inspiration. A view of the scriptures shows clearly that God has preserved his words also. Thus, our understanding of preservation goes beyond the books, chapters, thoughts, concepts, and sense, all of which have been preserved, but it extends to the words, the words, unquote. You see, God promised to preserve his words. God promised. And he did it through his churches. You know, if you, if, you know, an honest, an honest, um, an honest person would admit that, that, uh, uh, there has been a faithful line of trusted manuscripts through the centuries. But I want to notice a third thing here. I've got to keep moving here. The application of Scripture. The application of Scripture. So, it is, you know, our, 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 our uh, doctrinal statement says this, then, that it is to be the final authority for faith and life. It is the final authority for faith and practice. Now, so think about faith. Faith is a system of religious beliefs, and that's, that's, a, that's a declaration or a statement of faith. It is the setting forth of what we believe, and that's what we have in our Constitution. And so if we believe the Scriptures are the words of God, and we believe in Him as our Lord, and our beliefs should be, then should be taken from His Word. You know, what we believe about the origin of life. What we believe about God, His persons. You know, and again, this is, where the, this is where the differences are. Many of, those, many of those who proposed new translations or a new family of manuscripts didn't believe in creation. Two of the main proponents, Westcott and Hort, didn't believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. In other words, they followed Darwin's theory of evolution. They also believed in the worship of Mary. Bruce Metzger, who was known for his work in discrediting the King James Version and endorsing other versions, said the book of Jonah is a myth. And yet, 
these people are telling us that we need to believe what these guys say. Well, we have to ask the question, have they taken their beliefs from God? That's what the Bible says we're to do. I already mentioned to you that several of the translators or those that worked on committees were homosexuals. Virginia Mellicott was a lesbian. Martin Woodstrew, one of the translators in NIV, believed that Romans 1 does does not fit the case of a sincere homosexual. Christian. Westcott and Hort, they also believe this, and this is blasphemous. They believe the substitutionary atonement of Christ an immoral and material counterfeit. Is that what the Bible teaches? No, see, the Bible is to determine what we believe about the origins of life, what we believe about God, his person, his attributes, his qualities or characteristics, that he is holy, immutable, just, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, that he is love, that he's a God of judgment, yet he's merciful and gracious. He manifests himself in three persons. By the way, they denied the Trinity also. See, the Bible needs to be our authority for our faith. But further than that, it needs to be our authority for our practice. You know, our faith, or what we believe, determines our practice. That's why Westcott and Orton, I can't remember which one of them, one of them wrote about the fact that he were, they, were, they were passing through an area, and they came upon this, I guess they called it a shrine, I can't remember the wording they used, but he said it was, it was an image of Mary, the Virgin Mary, he said, I could have worshipped there for hours. You see, the reason he could worship there for hours is because he believed that Mary could intercede for him. His practice was based upon his belief. He is a Bible denier. No, Jesus, you know, the Bible says in Matthew 4, 4 that, that we're to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And of course, that's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You know, Peter said, 1 Peter 1.15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So if we believe that God is holy, our manner of life, our conversation ought to be holy also. It ought to affect the way we live, our practice. Thirdly, we are to observe his words. Again in John 14 and verse 23, John 14 and verse 23. The Bible says, Judas saith unto him, not a scare, Lord, hell is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the word. I'm sorry, verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And again, in verse uh I think it's chapter 17, verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. So they received, and we're talking about his church received his words. So we are to observe his words. In other words, to observe means we are to regard it with attention. It is his words. And we are to observe, we are to regard those words with attention. You know, this, is a, this is a serious issue. You know, the, the text I read, Psalm 138, verse 2, says he's magnified his word above all his name. Anybody know what the third commandment is? Huh? Not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Do you know what they did with somebody that took the Lord's name in vain? They stoned him. And yet the Lord says, I have magnified my word above all my name. You know, there's a curse 
given, a very serious warning given at the end of the Bible. At the close of our, the revelation, what we call, and of course the revelation is God revealed himself in his word, but the book Revelation ends with a curse. Verse 18, Revelation twenty-two eighteen. If I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. You see, when we start tampering with the word of God, I believe it shows us, shows or reveals that we really don't believe. We're unbelievers. And this is what this is what has is taking place in the last hundred and fifty years. But you know, started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Satan said, Yea, hath God said. Hath God said? And see so we got a bunch of people that say they believe the Bible. But then they make statements that contradict themselves. For example, James Price was on the committee of the New King James Version. And and he said he didn't believe the received text is the word of God. And and he he states this in an email with Dr. David Cloud. He says, quote, Dr. Price stated that the Bible nowhere explicitly teaches that God will preserve the scriptures, unquote. When he was understandably challenged for stating that God did not promise to preserve the scriptures, Dr. Price replied, quote, I know the passages that infer preservation, and I believe the doctrine. I just don't think that the Bible explicitly states how God preserved his word, unquote. Now, how can you believe the doctrine and then say, I just don't know how God's... Did God ever explain to you how a virgin could conceive? Christianity is like faith. Um, Two men, Douglas Chin and Robert Newman, wrote a article called Demystifying the Controversy Over the Text Receptus in the King Version of the Bible. And in that article they say this. They quote Luke 21 33 which says, Heaven and earth shall pass away but my word shall not pass away. And, uh, and they're saying that you know some people promote this idea that, that this leads men to, to believe that God has preserved his word. But, but they, they say this. Any, quote, any fundamentalist would like to have a cop, perfect copy of the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts of the Bible. Unfortunately, no two extent manuscripts are identical. Furthermore, no original manuscripts and no perfect copies are known to exist. Thus, God has not chosen to preserve the text of the Bible perfectly. Some of these textual errors should be readily apparent to all Bible readers. Thus, Matthew 5.18 and Luke 21.33 cannot refer to the perfect preservation of the text of the Bible. So again, they don't believe the Bible. Uh, and you know, you'll take those Bibles and you read them. For example, in, in Acts eight thirty-seven, the New International Version, it's blank; it's not there. And even the New King James Version, which they say was translated from the text receptus, from which our King James was translated. Even in that, in Acts 8.37, it has a footnote at the end of the verse. And it says this. It says this. NU texts and M texts omit this verse. It is found in Western texts, including the Latin tradition. Now, what is NU text? Well, it's Nestle Allen United Bible Society text, from which all other versions of the Bible were translated from. 
So why the footnotes? What is their origin? Again, they refer to those, those corrupted texts. And here's a quote. And if you, if you have a, one of those defined King James Bibles, so this is on page 1628, I think it is, this quotation. This is from the New King James Editors. This is a quotation. It was the editor's conviction that the use of footnotes would encourage further inquiry by readers. They also recognized that it was easier for the average reader to delete something he or she felt not properly a part of the text than to assert a word or phrase which had been left out by the revisers, unquote. So they're putting these footnotes to encourage you who don't know Greek and Hebrew to do further study to really say whether it should be there or not. You know, when I read that and what I thought to myself, it really sounds to me, Brad, like these guys really don't know what they're doing. And they're admitting it. They really don't know what they're doing. They're not sure if those words should be in there or not. So they've given the footnotes so you can inquire as to whether you think it should be there or maybe you should just delete it out. So why don't you just go through your Bible and delete out the parts you don't like. And I fear that's some of what they've done. New King James Version. Acts 13.13 says this. I encourage you to look this up in your King James Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the New King James Version. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. It says his servant, Jesus. It's in Acts 16, or 3.13, I'm sorry. Acts 3.13. God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus. The New King James Version says, his servant, Jesus. That isn't the only one. Verse 26, the same chapter. To you first, God having raised up his servant, Jesus. And verse 26 of the King James says, Unto you, God having raised up his son, Jesus. And there's four verses like that in the book of Acts, just in the book of Acts alone. And, and if you go to Acts 4.29, the New King James Version again says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants. There the disciples are talking about themselves. Your servants, that with all boldness they may seek your word. So what have they just done? They put Jesus on the same level as the disciples. Jesus just a servant of God. Was he a servant of God? No, he's the son of God. He's Jehovah. He's the I am. He's not a servant. He came to serve, but he was God. See, this is the fruit of wrong belief about the Bible. There's a lot more I could say, but I'm out of time. But the crux of the matter is, all these other versions are coming, their source is from unbelief. The translators are unbelievers. They endorse unbelief. United Bible Society, which is the text that almost other, all these other translations come from, the United Bible Society accepted Unitarians into its association starting in 1831. And a Unitarian denies that Jesus is God. They're unbelievers. And they endorse the Vatican, who hates the King James Version. Now, they won't say that anymore because they're trying to get all religions come back to 
to Rome. So they don't say that publicly anymore, but when the King James Version came out, do you have any, everybody ever hear of the gunpowder plot? The gunpowder plot was an attempt to blow up, I think it was the Parliament building in England, because they did not, could not stand this translation work that was going on. It was, and the source of it was the Catholic Church. But it was foiled. They found out about it. And that, they say that plot would have destroyed the whole parliament building. You see, but see, we are, we are, we are to receive, accept the Bible, used by Bible believers that have been passed down, kept by the preservation of God, down through the centuries. You know, the Waldensians, the Albigensians, our Baptist forefathers, they had the pure word of God. And along with trying to kill all them, the Catholic Church tried to destroy their literature and their Bibles too. But they had the pure word of God. They had it in their own language. They had it in Italian, French, and even in English. Before the King James Bible. So we, are to, we have to accept, receive what, the Bible that's been used, that, that, that the early church, you know, Jesus said in John 17, 18, I have given them my words and they have received them. That's why they call it the text of Receptus. It means received. The churches received it. True churches received the manuscripts from which the King James Bible is written. And secondly, God promised to preserve his words, you know, to the jot and tittle. And by these words, we will be judged. We're going to give an account too. And so we are to observe it. It's not, all, it's not up to us to determine which ones we like and which ones we don't. You know, the interesting thing about the translation of the King James Version, and I thought of this the other day, the King of England got two different religious groups. There was Anglicans and there was Puritans and neither one really liked each other. And so they were constantly checking each other to make sure that they did it right. You know what? That, that helped them translate it correctly. But laying all that aside, those men believed in the preservation of Scripture. They believed they were dealing with God's words and they didn't think they had a right to change it. And neither do we. We need to believe what God has given to us. And like Psalm 119, verse 31, I have stuck to thy testimonies. We need to stick to them. We need to stick to them. God has given us his words preserved for us. May we stick to those words. May we magnify his word in our lives by being obedient to it.